Welcome to Market Meditations, the podcast where Chris Heidel and Neil Modi, myself, uh, do a deep dive into how to be a better human. And hopefully that also makes us a better investor as well. By day, Chris Heidel is a registered investment advisor and investor in the public markets extraordinaire. And by day, Neil Modi is a venture capitalist. I don't normally talk about myself as a third party point of view, but I'm a VC uh, investing in life science companies. opinions expressed by Neil Modi, Chris Idell, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Zoic Capital or Heidel Beal and Associates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that I make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. We're welcoming Franklin Prendergast to the uh, podcast today. He's a uh, PhD MD. More notably, he helped run the Mayo Clinic as one of the board members and actually ran the cancer clinic and made it one of the top cancer clinics in the entire country. In addition to that, he also served on the board of Eli Lilly. Uh, and previously to that, he chaired the board of the Infectious Disease Research Institute in my hometown, Seattle, Washington. Uh, Frank is a Rhodes Scholar in, ad um, in addition to that. I guess I could go on about Frank's <laughs> resume forever. There's never so we enough. should probably just There's learn from Frank. Enough, Frank. There's never enough. But, but uh, I, I guess the most important thing is I call Frank my close friend um, and I learn a lot from him nearly every time I talk to him. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you, Neil. Yeah, welcome, Frank. Uh, Chris, I, I thought we had, I thought we had spoken before, but I feel as though I know you. Yeah. Um, Neil has spoken extensively about oh, well, you. Well, thank you. Um, I guess I have to defend myself at some point. <laughs> yes, you will. <laughs> Maybe some is indefensible, but welcome. <laughs> so, Frank, um, you you caught the disease you got the virus yes i did um you know it was a it, in many ways it was a surreal experience mm -hmm. um i had been traveling to, uh, in new york just about the 5th of march uh got back my birthday was the 7th we had a celebration on the 6th and we don't really know where it started but we suspect it was when we had a birthday celebration with the whole family because of the six people who were there, five got sick with COVID. Mm -hmm. um, were you skiing in Italy, or was this just a New York trip? No, there's no skiing. <laughs> yes, there's no skiing in Jamaica, so I never learned. <laughs> um, so this was uh, interesting and disastrous in many ways. Um, it, it's interesting to tell a story because there are so many myths, and with all these um, broadcasts recently of the so-called, um, well, I call them town quasi-town hall meetings with the president and his team. Um, apart from Fauci and Burks, there have, there have been so many misleading statements. I think the public is justified in being conf completely confused. Um, but my own journey was began very simply with a very low-grade fever, 100.8. As a physician, I wouldn't uh, really look uh, very hard at that particular temperature. 
but it quickly degenerated with a, a very dry, hacking, uh, miserable cough, uh, shortness of breath, um, and then progressively, many of the other symptoms you've heard described uh, took about eight days to fully develop, at which point I got very weak, very easily fatigued, miserable cough, low-grade temperature, um, and most significantly for me, loss of taste um, and a diminished smell. The medical terms for those are dysgeusia and um, hyposmia. And the reason I mention those names is it's worth remembering that the total loss of taste is called agusia. This was an altered taste. I didn't completely lose my sense of taste, but everything I taste tasted wrong compared to what it should have. Um, I didn't eat for nine days, and I lost 10 pounds. Um, very early on, about the seventh day, it started. And the eighth day, I remember, I stopped eating for 10 days, for nine days. Um, 100.8, 100.8, never got above 100.8, and that was with a, with a 100.8, not 108, 100.8, 108, I would have croaked. Um, uh, so, and the the, um, the diminution of symptoms was slow, it took about 12 days, so the total course was about 21 days. Um, uh, the taste took a little longer to recover, um, but the weakness, and it really was weak and short of breath, uh, I got to the point where I couldn't walk more than uh, 200 yards on the level ground, at least here in Colorado. Um, and the public health nurse uh, called me. I couldn't get tested, by the way. There were no tests available, despite all the hoopla you hear from the White House. I could not get tested because I wasn't sick enough. But if I had gotten more sick, just judging as a clinician, I would have died. Um, I couldn't go to the hospital because the emergency room wouldn't take me in any of the hospitals close to my home. Uh, so basically, it was a matter of toughing it out. Um, and since I live alone, that was quite an experience. I can only imagine the despair that patients who are by themselves in the hospital on a respirator must feel. It would be nice to have the White House express some empathy for those people because it's horrible. The public health nurse, uh, you know, after I recovered, I had an antibody test, one of the early ones. Um, I don't know if it's fully approved yet, but it was a very strong positive, uh, which as a formal laboratory person myself, I don't think this could have been a false positive. It was too strong. Um, and I was called by the uh, county uh, public health board uh, to give them my experience because of the report of my positive test. And she asked me, what is the single worst symptom of all? And I said, my four-year-old child would have said, I felt yucky. And that's a superb medical description. <laughs> we appreciate that. <laughs> so that's my COVID experience. And I'll tell you, um, I feel for the patients who get really, really sick. Uh, because in my erstwhile days as a clinician, as a medical student, intern, and uh, resident, everybody thinks, well, they hear about ventilators, they have ventilators. It is a miserable experience to be on a ventilator. And then, then you have the challenge of getting off the ventilator 
which can also be a very miserable experience as well. So I, I count myself as having been very, very lucky. I had three strikes against me, diabetes, hypertension, and age. And any one of those uh, could have knocked me off. How did you stuff. treat yourself while you were sick and in quarantine, doctor? Did you, uh, what would you recommend or what course did you take? Well, what they say, what physicians tell you, you know, usually is true. Um, uh, forgive me, just ignore <laughs> that if you can. Um, we, we can. We're good at it. We're good at uh, putting noise out of our minds. As well, there's a hell of a lot of a hell of a lot of chicken soup, um, a lot of lemonade. Uh, keep myself very well hydrated. Uh, keep my lungs as clean as you can. Oh, oh, there's one other symptom in in regard to hydration. I noticed for about ten days, I was accumulating fluid in my abdomen. I could tell just because I would percuss my abdomen, but I have something to do. And you would hear the dullness. <laughs> and I also noticed that urine was exceedingly concentrated despite copious uh, intake of fluids. And then about day 11 or 12, I just had this massive diuresis for about 24 to 30 hours. Thereafter, my stomach became flat. Uh, the fluid was gone. Um, and I could uh, just have a complete normal uh, micturition. I think some of these symptoms are played light off. Um, and one other thing I'll tell you, which is very important in terms of taking care of yourself. Um, recently, I had a cause to wear a, an electronic monitor, like a Holter monitor. And my heart started doing some flippy flops and arrhythmias that I don't think I could recount exactly why. The diagnosis from the monitor was, uh, essentially a, what is called a paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. So I was getting arrhythmias. And the reason I mentioned that is um, it didn't surprise me, knowing what I know about how this virus is supposed to infect the body. But much too little is made of that problem uh, because I'm convinced that many of the patients who are dying, especially young ones, mm. may be dying from arrhythmias. Mm. So that's my COVID story. I've become a COVID celebrity. Um, <laughs> it's the wrong kind of celebrity to be, yeah. Frank. Well, I let me tell you, I really don't wish on either of you this uh, this condition. I've had flu in the past. I've had dengue in the past. This is by far the worst mm -hmm. viral infection I've gone through. Mm -hmm. And the yeah, Frank. The, and, that was a miserable three weeks, Frank. And how are you now? Do you feel that there were? Oh, I'm, I'm fully recovered. My strength hasn't recovered. Mm -hmm. I noticed that when I'm riding a bike. Um, that's not surprising. Um, uh, and I did lose a lot of weight, uh, but I've been eating copiously and mm -hmm. you regain much of it. Um, and the, the feeling of just being sick, it's, it's worse than malaise. That has gone completely. But it took me about four to five weeks in total mm -hmm. to fully recover. Frank, um, you, you and I were having a conversation about uh, something that could be even worse than the current pandemic um, that I haven't heard anybody else talking about anywhere. We were talking about H1N5 and 
H5N1. H5N1 and yes. the coronavirus mutating. Do you mind sharing the bleakness of that conversation with our listeners, please? Well, I've been interested in infectious disease since medical school. And one of the reasons is that I early on had learned about the so-called Spanish flu, which, by the way, is not called Spanish flu because it originated in Spain. In fact, Spain was largely excluded from most of the pandemic. Um, but uh, the Spanish flu was H1N1. Uh, it was a species. Um, the H5N1 is so-called bird flu. And the point about H5N1 is the increased infectivity and second, the increased severity of disease. And that is incubating. And, and the public health people around the world are fully aware of it. It's incubating. And we don't know when it might launch as a pandemic. This is not the last pandemic. That's the first thing. The, the second thing is coronaviruses are ubiquitous. There are coronaviruses everywhere. And we've had two major warnings about coronaviruses before. The first was SARS. That was just called SARS-CoV. That's the name of the virus. The, the second was MERS. And I happened to be in Saudi Arabia at the time when the MERS epidemic was raging. And given the symptoms that I heard about uh, from directly from people in the health service in, in uh, Riyadh, I was quaking in my shoes, wondering whether I would get it or whether it would get loose in the, in the country. Because the lethality, of, um, uh, especially of MERS, is greater than that of coronavirus. If we can guess at what the, either of those is really in terms of lethality. Um, the point of all of this is at any moment you could get an escape variant um, and those could launch as uh, pandemics. I think it's a little harder for them because they're not quite as contagious, I don't think, as coronavirus. One of the things that stri strikes me about the proper name for the virus is SARS-CoV-2. The thing that strikes me as a physician and as a scientist about SARS-CoV-2 is how remarkably contagious it is. And if you want to get an idea, you should read the report from the German uh, epidemiologist who just re released a report on patient zero in Germany. And if their story is right, then everybody should be really scared about how easy it is. To yeah, that's the salt shaker story. Um, they, that's yeah. correct. You, Chris, you got it right. Pass the salt shaker. If that story is more than simply anecdotal, that is really frightening. Um, so the net of all of this, uh, uh, Neil, is that given the ubiquity of uh, coronaviruses and given the fact that it has already mutated into forms like MERS and SARS-CoV-1 and then SARS-CoV-2, um, there needs to be preparedness uh, for this, mechanical in terms of PPE, etc. You've heard the story which is a shocking indictment, by the way, of the administration. Um, and secondly, um, the preparedness scientifically. Um, Neil, you may not know this, but IDRI uh, with Steve Reed uh, started a program a few years ago called Res um, Rapid Response Vaccine Development. I'm familiar. Yeah. And the notion being that you can prepare. Uh, for example, since the spike protein is is so popularly the target for vaccine development, why not have expressed it and developed a vaccine as a, as a preparatory step 
irrespective of whether you use it, and develop it to the point where the launching of a vaccine through appropriate phase three studies would be feasible. But human beings are not known necessarily for their intelligence. Um, and it's, <laughs> it, it really is a shocking indictment of the entire public health system. One, that warnings duly given are not taken. Number two, that we refuse to spend the relatively small amount of dollars that it would take to keep seed stock for a potential vaccine, even if we keep it just in the freezer, and then be able to put it out in a moment's notice and launch both a phase one and a phase two study to look at effectiveness and safety. We actually had a conversation is- with an economist last week um, named Josh Gans out of University of Toronto, and he was suggesting that he's not sure that the world governing bodies are going to do anything quickly about this pandemic together, which we, we all obviously think was ridiculous. And he pointed out that it took two world wars to get the IMF started. Um, so I wonder what it takes to get the equivalent for pandemic well, readiness worldwide. Well, and it's started. also true that's our bias, right? It's, the recency bias. So something may come of it, but will we sustain it? In, well, that's the, the problem. The, the, there is no sense of prophylaxis, at least in this regard. Socially, yes, but not in this. Um, and yet it is feasible. It is absolutely feasible. Just like you keep, keep feeds, uh, seed stocks in the Arctic, you can darn well build at least the early stages of vaccine development, at least through the point of proof. And I have proof of the validity of what I'm saying because the Ebola uh, situation is a, is, a, is a case in point. Um, IDRI bought what is part of a contract to prepare a vaccine funded by the government. This is a wonderful case of preparedness. Um, they have a contract for $30 million uh, to prepare a vaccine, which will be a pentavalent vaccine, against all the dangerous hemorrhagic fevers. And we've talked about coronaviruses. You want to really want to hear something nasty? Talk about Ebola Zaire and Ebola Sudan, and then Lassa and Marburg. Um, and those have not been at least, you know, let loose on the world, fortunately. Uh, but Zika was, and Nipah is also at risk, a, a great, a significant risk. Fortunately, they haven't been let loose. But there is a vaccine that's being prepared as we speak against these hemorrhagic fevers, thank the Lord. And by the way, the initial results are spectacular. So some work is going on if, they, if it could be broadened and they could spend 1% of a trillion dollars. Remember who we've spent, we're spending for at the moment. That's <laughs> right. the beginning. As Chris said, yeah, I think you said there's another one and a half coming, you think? Chris? Oh, yeah, two, another 2.2 and another 1.6. It's going to be, my numbers are wrong, but they're close. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the amount that you need to launch a sensible program, anticipating, you can't anticipate all because you'd never know what organism is going to mutate into something really awful or what new organism is going to come but you sure can do a hell of a lot better. I, 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 would, I will say just one more thing in this regard um, for your audience. You know, this is preferentially, not uniquely, because I've had two of my family die this week Sorry um, of COVID. Sorry to hear that, Frank. 
in COVID. One was 23 years old. And the, the point of all of this is that, in fact, um, we, have, uh, we have the option um, of, the, let me back up. There used to be a thing called the infectious disease listening posts around the world. I think I'm not, I, I better be careful to say which administration got rid of most of them, um, not all of them. But it was a mechanism whereby the public health groups around the world, and especially the CDC, could get wind of risk early and could, in fact, um, implement tools, uh, at least in a sense of preparation, to try to deal with the potential risk um, long before it became a real problem. In the case of uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2, COVID, they had ample warning. Um, and they at least could have got the diagnostic capabilities ready and in mothballs ready to be rolled out. This was a classic failure of public health mm. policymakers. And it didn't all come out of the blue, Frank. It, yeah, this is no, a it did not. long process. You know, I've often thought of just in, in the behavioral sciences, <laughs> how the knowledge is cyclical. It's not like the physical sciences in the world in which you work, where the knowledge is cumulative. It seems we have to relearn the lessons of our grandparents, <laughs> great grandparents, all over again for right. ourselves. That's and a very good. A long, a long period of um, not seeing these risks convinces us that they don't exist, or we put our guard down. If you get cynical, Chris, and I know you're something of a, a philosopher here. This really looks like um, some sort of plot to cull oh. the old people in the world. Um, this is awful situation where one particular demographic, age demographic, is being disproportionately affected, plus, of course, the impact in terms of diversity in the population. And it's, um, I've heard some, um, I've heard some nonsense. Well, that sounds ridiculous. Usually you hear a lot of nonsense from politicians. Um, but I heard some nonsense this week, which was so cynical uh, that it's okay effectively to let old people die. They almost have a right to die to provide for the younger. Oh, wow. But my God, you know, can you imagine being in a nursing home where 50% of the population in the nursing home is infected? And then 50% of those die. Or a nursing home that's completely abandoned. Frank, like I, um, in Italy. I would say I had that experience after Hurricane Katrina. I'm a New Orleans native. And the first sign of that same thing was resignation, that it was really the poor people who were disproportionately affected. And, oh, well, there wasn't a real uh, attention to that. And here you're right. I think if children were dying, the whole response would be, um, much more understanding and dramatic than. Or if you calculated the number of 747s which would crash, if you had one 747 crashing with 350, 400 people, what, 50? Yeah, you'd spend a lot more money to, to fix yeah, this. Yeah, 2,000 people a day dying on a 747 in America would get everyone's attention in a harsher way than we have it yeah now. 
Yeah. Um, Frank, I, I'm curious, and this is a question I, I meant a lot for you too, Chris. Um, this pandemic, you know, I, I've been trying to think about once in a hundred year occurrences, things we can't see or sense as well. Um, first question for you, Frank, is uh, when do you think the next pandemic will be here? We've been kind of asking this to a couple different people. Uh, I, I, I wish I were sincere. <laughs> Um, you can play one on this podcast. I mean, do you think it's under 20 years? Let me ask well, you. Let me start with an easy, num- easy number over. Okay. Yes. Do you think it's yes. under 10 years? I don't think so, but I'm not sure. I'm watching H5N1 very carefully. Um, I don't think so. I think it's somewhere between a decade and two decades. And if, in fact, we learned anything, maybe we can find a way to interdict, interdict uh, the situation. Yeah, so it's actually Eric's belief, er- Eric Tan, who I work with at Zoic, it's Eric's belief that um, we'll see the next pandemic in about 15 years. Yeah, 10 to, 10 to 20 years, 15 years is about right. Very interesting. Um, Chris, you, you're pretty good at history and um, maybe one of the best read uh, investors I've met in history. Mm. Uh, did you think about a pandemic happening in your life anywhere? I didn't take um, I didn't imagine the threat to be like this. No. This is. Did you imagine a pandemic in our in our lives that would affect America? Yeah, yeah. I had a a real. Um, it's fascinating in many ways. A real failure of imagination to grasp the uh, all the consequences, and I think um, it's also remarkable to see the response you know, to Frank's point, to see what's being done in other um, areas that give us instruction on how to handle this, like what's happened in South Korea and Taiwan, of course, Germany. Um, And also it makes it a glaring fact of what we're missing here at home, so in the U.S. But um, no, I didn't imagine this. Um, Frank? the, The rapidity of it, the speed, the warp speed of it, I think, is really what caught me flat. I complete, and that's due to the mm-hmm. inherent infectivity. And, and did Contagious. you see? Did you think we'd see a pandemic um, in your life, Frank, uh, as you were studying infectious diseases? Oh, the answer is yes. Um, there's a colleague of mine at Mayo who is quite well known in this country. Um, his name is Greg Poland. He works a lot with uh, the Department of Defense, but uh, he's in the general population as well. And I remember Greg at Mayo has been talking about the risk of a pandemic. I think he was coming at it primarily from the standpoint of influenza. Um, But he talked about this. And it's scary how the playbook that he pictured for everybody is playing out. And it's also interesting, by the way, there's a book that was published, I think, about two years ago, where the that playbook in that book. I don't remember the author. I heard it in public radio the other day, uh, but I'm sure it will be easy to find, in which the playbook that that author conjured is remarkably the playbook that's oh, yes. out right there, now. There was actually, I, I saw an interview on 60 Minutes with a, a guy who actually did a simulation in, in December for a lot of big countries to look at what a pandemic would look like. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Obviously, it hit China first, and, and the Chinese health minister was at that simulation 
Um, so he was saying how how remarkably scary and accurate everything that he predicted uh, happened. Well, six, six years ago, I gave a CME lecture in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This was for the Mayo's CME program. And I gave it a the title, the following title, Infectious Agents Don't Need to Buy Plane Tickets. <laughs> they ride for free. And it was the source of <laughs> There's a cost, Chris. You're an economist. <laughs> don't forget that. <laughs> you know, it was the source of significant hilarity in people leaving the room. I would love to see the audience again. And, and, and what is scary about that is, maybe it was just me, um, everybody thought it was a real absurdity, a joke. Mm. Interesting. Clearly not. Um, what, what other once-in-a-hundred-year occurrences, Chris and, and, and Frank, um, and I guess this is not a once-in-a-hundred-year occurrence anymore, it just happened to have happen 101 years ago. What other ones do you think we're facing in in both of, well, say all three of our lifetimes. I, I'm, I'm the youngest at 40 here. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> well, I, I, we already have seen um, this pre-COVID, you know, the rise of nationalism. Um, there'll be more onshoring. I think this um, is a very, it's a fascinating case study because Nothing could affect all aspects of our lives like a pandemic could, like a virus. And the, the combination of its mortality and its infectiousness, it's amazing. And you couldn't devise a more diabolical weapon. So I, uh, I think it exposes our weakness in the supply chain. So there'll be more onshoring. Um, there'll be a furtherance, I think, of um, kind of more nationalist attitudes. I hope that- Wait, you're- you're going the wrong way. I, I not, I'm not asking for a conclusion about what happens after the pandemic. Yeah. I'm asking you about other once in a hundred year occurrences. I see. Wow. I'm actually well, asking I, you I to put your actuarial hat on if you were right. No, I think it could, it, you know, the rise of nationalism and the furtherance of it um, could make countries a little more bellicose. I think we, we could have uh, more flare-ups, more violence if we're not careful if the more noble aspects of our humanity don't come out of this crisis. So. I, I would agree with you. It's not just this crisis. I think generally one of the things that I have been surprised by, even though I had thought that it was feasible or at least plausible, is how one individual can so distort the society that we see with tolerance attached, armed people in a, in, a, in a capital, as we did in Michigan, where they're carrying submachine guns openly, and I bet you they were loaded, with just essentially a whisper of um, disagreement with that stance, despite the minority. This cannot be classed as free speech. And what I'm surprised at in that case and by the way, this is exactly what you're talking about, Chris, the rise of what I call subhumanity. Um, I think that is a very real risk as right-wingism seems to hold sway increasingly in the world, partly driven by the misguided attitude towards need, 
and and partly written just out of sheer meanness. I agree with you. That is a social phenomenon that I find scary, because this the few can drive the the behavior, not the behavior, but the response of many. Uh, and and one individual has sufficient influence to have that be an impact all over the world. It's true. And largely because of the fact that our, our checks and balances, the people who are responsible for our checks and balances, namely the Congress, is so pusillanimous. Um, well, I it even is think they take on the, the values of the one in power, right? It becomes um, both sides become better and better at marshalling hatred and division. It's a... Uh, um, almost like a breeder reactor. We have to shake ourselves out of it. I think and hope this fighting this you in unified way, this enemy, like an alien invasion, would bring us together. But... Well, I think that, to be honest with you, I'm sufficiently cynical at this point. I think that's probably <laughs> a forlorn hope. Uh, but just one quick thing that I keep forgetting to say because it's a, a real pet peeve of mine regarding um, COVID or other infectious diseases, Neil, is that we use as our sole metric of severity, um, our dominant metric, 95% to 5%, dominant metric, mortality. And everybody seems to forget that there is a whole path to dying. Mm-hmm. It's called morbidity. And the reality is we need a morbidity index for people to fully understand the impact of this disease. Because a hell of a lot of people get really sick and they suffer and the economy suffers and everything suffers. The morbidity is way in excess of the mortality in terms of death. Even people who survive, they go through 20, 30, 40 days of recovery in a very expensive environment in the intensive care of hospitals. And they are sick. And the toll that takes on families must be enormous. So I'd love to see a morbidity index. And I'd love to see discussions. I don't hope for any empathy from Trump, um, but it would be nice to have the populace understand that it's not just dying, it's also being damned sick. Yeah. Frank, I think that's a, a fantastic suggestion. Frank, I'm curious, and, and Chris, weigh in everywhere you can, please. When when do you think, so my wife works at Microsoft. When do you think she'll be back at work normally? And I've heard different answers and rumors from within her company and, um, you know, all over the place. I, you know, I, I live in Seattle, what was ground zero for the United States. When When will all the Amazonians be back? When will all the people at Boeing be back? When does that happen again? That's a complex, uh, that, and I keep telling people that questions are invariably simple. There are not co- very few complex questions. It's the answers that are complex. And this is a, this is a good I example. Um, yeah. Simple question. Yes. Simple question, hard to answer because the, the variables are so broad and so dependent on independent company attitudes, the size of the company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
the, the small on. companies. Hold on, I would say we could all agree it's five. over five years. Sorry, it's under five years that they'll be back to work. But the fact that I'm even saying years is strange. Well, to me. it depends. I I don't think so. I I think I personally believe that a vaccine will come along. And if I could, you you know, if I had my way with all, I'd give you some <laughs> advertisement of that. I personally believe that a vaccine will come. Coronaviruses are hard to build vaccines to, but our knowledge and sophistication, I personally believe that Steve Reed is one of the best vaccine hunters in the world. And if we, he and Derek Carter were loose to really work on vaccines, a variety of vaccines that he could do it. And I know a vaccine candidate that I have great faith in. I'm trying to raise funds for. I think a vaccine will come along. If a vaccine doesn't come along, we're in deep tapioca anyway. Very deep tapioca for a very long time. We need a vaccine. And is, is there any evidence, uh, Frank, of uh, of immunity? You have evidence of antibodies. No, um, you know, it's going to take a while, Chris. Um, you need more people who will have had either a vaccine or have had the disease and recovered. And we prove that they have what are called not just antibodies, but neutralizing antibodies. Um, and if so, you can be more and more confident that they don't have to just take it as presumptive evidence that they're immune, immune. at least in the short term. We don't know about long-term immunity. That, that'll take time. Um, but if 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 they if they if they I think we need to get about sixty to seventy percent is the figure that I've heard quoted repeatedly by by my epidemiology friends, and if we can get to that number, um, then in fact we will be protected at least against SARS-CoV-2. Uh, what the heck happens if new ones come along? Oh, I don't know. I hope there's enough cross reactivity. So, Neil, I think not five years. I, I really do believe that there will be a vaccine. But remember the challenges associated with trying to vaccinate such huge numbers of people, both in terms of manufacture, distribution, Worldwide. and yeah. administration. They work wide. Because if you leave pockets anywhere and they can migrate, <laughs> you got a problem. Yeah. So-called herd so, immunity is very important. It sounds to me like you think over a year we'll, we'll give you an over versus an under um, till everybody's back to work normally. Uh, I No, I think it's probably going to be longer than that because just the sheer numbers involved, even with a good vaccine, um, just think of the army of people you're going to need to administer the vaccine depending on the route. And depending on how long the vaccines affect loss, um, we simply don't know. And we need all these things to be investigated thoroughly so we have a better idea. Either that or the cynicism of the society as a whole and letting the old people be culled takes over. Um, realistically, it's going to take the length of time is determined by, first of all, generating an effective vaccine. And secondly, manufacturing and distributing it. And thirdly, then testing to see if it's efficacious in the world, in the wide population, population-wide. 
This will be with us for a long time. The follow-on questions, Neil, of course, can't be answered. Like, what uh, are those changes in people's behavior? How soon will people get back to stadiums and basketball arenas or concerts? Those were kind of dying down. Concerts maybe were there, but um, uh, sports were dying down anyway. So people are going to be happy to watch it on TV, I think. Um, I don't think too much about that. I, I, you know, I do wonder when, you know, uh, the three of okay. us think about our next vacation, you know, when, when's the next time we should all be thinking about going to Jamaica and enjoying the beach. I really don't know, um, Neil. Um, uh yes my whole family i wanted to take because this may be the one of the few times within the rest of my life i'll be able to take my whole family but we just put it off indefinitely um i i don't know i, I think it's going to take a little bit of uh, you know sort of physical hubris to challenge the cold virus in my case i'm hoping i'm immune and i hope there'll be a vaccine for my children um, but I don't, I, I don't know. Chris, do you, do you worry about the, the, maybe the greatest crash of all time happening at the same time while all of these things are being drastically affected? Is that something that's in your calculus on a daily basis? Yes. Um, which businesses, which business models even will survive this in how we change? Um, I mean, who's buying an iPhone now? Right. <laughs> I put that to the audience. Maybe they can answer. I, I, um, I don't know. What uh, will people value coming out of the other side of this? Um, it certainly will change the way we consume in ways that uh, are going to have varying impacts on this. I don't know how many restaurants will come back. You know, small business is uh, 87% of our employment in this country. My heart goes out to that sushi restaurant we go to near your office. Yeah, they have takeout, but I'm not. A, I, I'm adventurous, but not that adventurous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm adventurous. After this, I, I'm going to go to a sushi restaurant and get takeout. <laughs> well, I mean, as a story for another day. You're also the one who right. went running with the bulls, so uh, you know. I, I, I never put anything past you. Yeah. <laughs> that is a classic example of stupidity. See, even even for a moment, you could relate with the uh, present administration. <laughs> no, I can't. There is stupidity. There is stupidity, and there is stupidity. In one case is asininity. Yeah, Frank, I'm, I've. Uh have my own version of schadenfreude, right? I wish we had a scientist like uh, Angela Merkel <laughs> is to at least know the limits of his, her knowledge and uh, also to understand and believe in science. <laughs> well, I have a new definition of nadir. <laughs> you um... thought we couldn't go lower. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh, God. Well, you know, I, I love this notion of schadenfreude. Um, I am sort of keep on hoping that maybe somebody will 
take one of these news conferences. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, what other questions do you have for Frank? I mean, we have this brilliant mind on the phone to be asking, you know, what, what kind of things are you wondering about um, that there's not good information about that would actually affect your trading next week? Oh my God. The, the... That Frank can answer. Sorry. He's not a, as he told us, he's not a soothsayer. Thanks for clearing that up, Frank. <laughs> I mean, are there any other questions you think would, would actually affect the, how you trade? No. Um, you know, Neil, the, the trading versus looking for the longer term opportunities. I, I really am trying to think 18 months to two years out. Of well, it sounds like you should be thinking longer than that. Yeah, Even by the questions clear. you're asking well, me. That is ultimately, <laughs> for a business cycle is where I'm thinking, at least. But we just don't know. We're really all flying in the fog of war. And I guess it's a, a question of, you know, when, um, other than having a vaccine, when this uh, can be tamed sufficiently so that there is some um, return of the supply chain and back to work for many people and how that can happen. Uh, but more importantly, it's a question of life and death. You know, are, are we appear to be flattening the curve, but I think many of the deaths are undercounted. So there's some corruption in the data. I don't know when we really think uh, we'll, we'll start to see a better um, result, a, a real flattening of the curve. If we can really see a flattening of the curve, then I think people will feel a sense of great relief and catharsis. Yeah, it, it's interesting when I um when I think about it from my perspective, um, and Frank, please weigh in on everything for the rest of the time you're with us. Um, uh, sh should you feel the desire to, or or even just throw rocks at our ideas, that's okay as well here. Um, it's interesting as I look at VC investment, I I think more and more about um, this idea of making sure there's an option to invest later. When, when things are more stabilized. So it's not a question of just investing now to build um, or to, to innovate on things that will actually affect people's health. It's about, you know, what will the, what's, because it's so hard to understand what the value is of something today. And most of the investments you're making anyway, or that I'm making anyway, are really a bet on an option of the future, right? Because most of these companies couldn't sell for exactly what I was uh, buying for today. So yeah. if I'm taking an option on the future, I want, you know, an extra leveraged option um, with the idea that things are more calm worldwide. Um, yes. So, so, so you want, uh, of course, it's got to be an asymmetrical bet. Right. In it's got to, your mind. It's got to be an asymmetrical bet with, you know, with both options, with two options on it, right? One, the first one to mm -hmm. initiate and the second one to make up anything I would have missed or to make up for the extra value of being able to do something now. You know, Neil, I mean, you're asking real world questions that affect me every single day, uh, both in terms of my thinking and in terms of my actions. Um, I find myself becoming more and more parsimonious with myself. Um, wanting to be more and more conservative, take less risk. Um, 
but especially focus a great deal on value, and that value is being redefined by what has happened with COVID. Um, there will always be need, uh, and therefore there will always be, be a need for creative entrepreneurship where it makes lives, uh, people's lives better. But this is not like a war, which in many ways is binary. The war is there, it's over. You recover from the war as best you can. There is a sort of lingering effect that worries me a great deal. A lingering uncertainty mm -hmm. and insecurity. Um, that is going to linger I think probably for the rest for of my life, time. there'll be a little bit of a lingering very, very possible. But with a, especially at the moment, and God knows I hope it changes in November, with a, uh, a jingoistic uh, administration, uh, you're going to be constantly worried about the impact of a, of a stupid decision. Um, and the fact that you compound what is already a terrible problem in the form of disease with a terrible action on the part of an idiot. <laughs> and that is, in many, ways, in many ways, that's more fearsome and more worrisome uh, than even COVID. Um, I really do believe in the power of science to solve problems and even to predict them and prevent them. I don't know how you deal with the absurdities of idiocy. Um, and that what really worries me, it's just like Chris said, with the whole rise of right-wing behavior. Um, in one sense, it's predictable. Uh, it's also controllable because the numbers still are small. But how big is the influence, really? So the, the sort of accumulation of all these uncertainties uh, creates a, an ongoing insecurity, which I think has to affect the market. I, I was rereading Kahneman's book on um, uh, Think Fast and Slow. Think <laughs> Slow and Fast. We'll put in the show notes again. So. <laughs> yeah. So, and realizing the whole issue of behavioral factors in determining economies. I, I had always thought that, but never could articulate it. Um, so just everything is going to change. And so there's no normality anymore against which you can buttress your future thoughts, your thoughts of the future. And the uncertainty that all creates, I think is going to be a drag on the market for a long time. Now, having said that, uh, I was asked yesterday, by a most unusual entrepreneur um, in the real estate business uh, to serve as an advisor for him. And uh, I'm going to do it. Uh, and I'm wondering, what in the <laughs> hell am I going to say? Yeah, it's a strange time for sure to be, be doing stuff uh, related to real estate. So none of you solve the problem of the world we appreciate your time today with us frank well this has been a wonderful uh soapbox for me i hope i've said no, something we appreciate your insights frank yeah i appreciate your heart especially thank you frank for joining us it's been great thank you yeah thank you we, i'll we, come we back in the next couple months um i think it even more important what it takes to run a world-class organization um a world-class research organization. Um, and I, I'm kind of curious, you know, the things you learned and the things you would change as a result of the things you saw and are seeing, um, because obviously 
the all of the researchers um, doing anything related to a virus or anything related to um, we'll call it healthcare are going to matter even more. Yeah, that, that's actually yes, that would be a lot of fun, uh, Neil. And just to tell Chris, you see, one of the things he is um, indirectly referring to, Chris, is that. Uh, not only was I on the Board of Governors and Board of Trustees at Mayo Clinic, um, but as also for a while director of the research oh. program at Mayo in Rochester. Um, and that is a very big research organization, not as big as some, but mm -hmm. bigger than the vast majority. And you have to know something about Mayo uh, as well, um, because it's a unique organization uh, in terms of how it's, it's structured and functions. Um, and even defining how you run things there is, is an interesting experience. I was also director of the Cancer Center there for 12 years. I'm not an oncologist, uh, but we did have substantial success during that period of time. And it's, it's, it's worthwhile examining for the public why. Why were we successful? In part because I was not an oncologist. Um, therefore, you escape the stereotypy but mostly because you empowered people to be themselves and to give of their best. Um, that is really, it's, it's humbling, um, but the, to the extent you can evoke that uh, sentiment, it's amazing what you can accomplish. And that's one of the things that gives me hope going forward. Mm. As long as we get leadership, right now we're sadly the Frank, was it an leadership. intentional process within Mayo to put um, say a non-oncologist in charge of the cancer center and cross-pollinate intellectually in that way? No, it ah, was totally okay. serendipitous. Um, you know, I, uh, I had no plans to do that. I had been director for research for the whole enterprise before, and uh, mm -hmm. there was just a need, and they said, you're the, you're the person to fulfill that need without any good reason for saying that. Well, there was a good reason, just not the reason of oncology. I said they were nuts, <laughs> is what I say. Well, thank you again. Thanks Frank. for your time today, Frank. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Real nice meeting you, Chris. We, we <laughs> need to do this in a different forum. And I hope in person one Over day. some beautiful Jamaican rum. Yes. I'll make you. I'll make you the best rum punch and daiquiri you ever had. And I'll even imbibe with you. All right, Frank. We're gonna hold you to that. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. Wow, that <laughs> a lot to think about, huh, Chris? <laughs> I was, um, yeah, at sea with my thoughts. He's fantastic. Um, He's so clear about how he thinks about the world. Well. You know, I think this is probably when he said, I have a new definition of Nader. I think that is, we all do. Um, you know, I, you think we've gone low enough, and then it just, this becomes a parody of itself. Um, if we look back, and people don't like to make comparisons historically, especially because it's difficult this time, but whether it's Marie Antoinette or. <laughs> or the 1930s and, you know, Mussolini and the sort of macho but cartoonish leaders, you wonder how it could have happened then. It's happening now, right? And it's not just here. It's almost like uh, at times a, a wave or a storm hits humanity. 
and we have to endure this um, corruption of leadership of just bad leadership on all sides, right? Yeah, it, it, everywhere we go. Yeah, it's for sure. But the optimistic side of me is uh, that, you know, Frank was cynically dismissing is when we're tested enough, we humans have survived. We've always bounced back. It's just a question of how bad does it have to get before we really stand our ground? And when would people, uh, what's that old saying, you, when you would rather die than subject yourself to a tyranny, even a small one, then tyranny can't advance? Right, you check it. I don't know if people would uh, rather die. <laughs> yeah, they give me liberty or give me death idea. Yeah, John Henry. Yeah, John, that was John Henry, of course. But, you know, the, the our country's been pretty remarkable. I mean, you know, we've had some bad presidents before. <laughs> um, right? Chester Arthur probably was not so well-remembered. Martin Van Buren. Strangely, uh, all of them were mixed, but this is a this is a, a real um, challenge, <laughs> a real challenge to especially a scientist, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's certainly interesting. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm kind of curious about a few things in current events that maybe we can cover before we uh, move on from the podcast, if you've got the time. Yeah. You know, I, I'm curious about. Um, how the oil price is going to continue to affect the world. The I mean, like you've got just a cataclysm of things just keep hitting the world again and again, and oil um, being one of them now, you know, the, the price of oil. what uh, talk, please yeah, enlighten, <laughs> share some information. Yeah, no, this is a fascinating <laughs> time. You know, there's a, there's an argument to be made that the, all of the markets are heavily um, manipulated. I mean that in the truest sense of the word. I'm not trying to use it in a loaded sense or a uh, um, judgmental sense, but the, the markets are being manipulated. The Japanese are buying directly in ETFs, form bonds and stock funds. Um, the Swiss National Bank was one of the biggest owners of Apple stock. The, you know, you see it all over. So these asset prices are propped up, but at the same time, you see markets like oil <laughs> and they're, they're like a raw shock of our very psyche. The, the oil price crashes um, because of a supply. Well, first the demand destruction from COVID and then the, the people who are the biggest producers, Russia and Saudi Arabia, which had an uncomfortable relationship, decide to have a fight. They're in denial. There's a price war that breaks out. So then you have a supply shock loaded on top of a demand shock. The oil price all the way goes all the way negative. It's really unbelievable. So to negative interest rates, which we have never seen in 5,000 years of interest rate history, we can now add negative oil prices. Which I would have never want. bet when, when you and I met, what, near 10 years ago now. I... We can add the, the sharpest, fastest decline ever in the stock market's history, um, a 35% decline has never happened that quickly. And also the fastest recovery of 22% or so from those from that bottom. Um, but you know, the, the profile of a bear market um, has historically always been a sharp sell-off followed by a reflexive rebound and then a long, drawn-out fundamental decline. 
So that's the profile. That's uh, Bob Farrell, the great Merrill Lynch analyst and uh, market seer and historian, had 10 rules of investing. That's his rule number eight, the profile of the bear market. But it's been that way. So we're definitely in that reflexive rebound phase. And those often are a retracement of between 50 and six, you know, 50, half to two thirds, 50 to 66 percent retracement. And we're right up there, 57, 58 percent before the market started giving it back up. I'm not thinking technically, but just looking at the history of how these things have played out. So I, I, <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I guess you're, you're also saying it's you're waiting and watching. Um, so you, just a little while ago, you know, just just to to show how bad we are at predictions, you were excited about um, some oil companies in, uh, I think the Netherlands, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Oh, Neil, I was excited about energy um, in the fourth quarter of last year because the um, oil prices were just, um, I think, recovering. They're still low historically, and it's certainly. <laughs> They're even lower now. The whole energy seg segment of the S&P 500 index was the smallest it had ever been, but it was 4.3%. Now it's about 1.2 or something percent of the index. It's shrunken more. So I thought of um, the energy space is very cheap in the fourth quarter on a relative basis, certainly, but even on an absolute basis. And now it's just unbelievable how... Um, how this is all played out. Wait, so what kind of business, what kind of like, you know, I, I, venture capital makes sense to me because we're working on things that take a while and, you know, they still, they're still needed in, in the stuff we're looking at anyway, is still needed in healthcare in a major way, right? Major cost savings, mm -hmm. um, major time savings, um, much better diagnostics. When you're looking at the public markets, can you give me even one interesting, one notable example um, to you about? Um, well, you've got to superimpose um, that that Rorschach test that the markets are. In the short term, there's a tremendous element of the human psyche. The fear right, breeds. Right, which you said once. It's imposed on the prices. It's an auction market. You're not in necessarily in uh, a daily auction <laughs> with your company. Right. Where you know people can assess the value of the whole entire enterprise to have fallen by half. <laughs> You're like, how did that happen in a month? The company, uh, but in this environment, you know, our fear is really stamped on this market. Um, I think even in this sort of bear market balance is what I anticipate most likely this is. It's certainly not the beginning of a bull market. We've only begun to see the earnings impact of COVID, just the tip of the yeah. um, first quarter. Wait, so is there, is there any sector you're liking even a little bit that you might, I mean, other than gold? I like a lot of sectors, um, but it's uh, with the caveat that I don't know how long they'll take to get up off the mat. Yes, but when you company. invest, you, you you give yourself. You're not. You're not. Even though I talk about what you're trading next week, you're really investing for five, ten years. Even though you're talking about two-year ideas. Yeah. So when you're thinking about five years out, what's a sector that you're in, at least enjoying looking at today? I think most transportation, especially shipping, is very, very inexpensive. That's a 
Um, That's been a theme of yours for a while now. Well, those companies went through a bear market. You know, there was an overbuilding of ships. The South Korean companies were very um, enterprising and very efficient, but it led to an oversupply. And then we went into the great financial crisis. Most of the shipping, especially dry bulk carriers, even many of the container ships, um, went through bankruptcy. Many of the shipbuilders uh, reorged, and the supply of, of um, ships hasn't met the demand growth. The bottom of that market in daily lease rates was around 2015, 2016, depending on what segment of the market you look at. But shipping globally is still the backbone of commerce. And to see those companies, you know, um, their revenues recover from that 2016 nadir and the stock market didn't even recognize it. Those are um, wonderful opportunities. But of course, just like with oil and energy, the um, global commerce is impacted and those things got that were already inexpensive in the fourth quarter got cheaper. <laughs> you can say that about many assets, um, except for tech. I think in the public markets, um, they were uh, that were inexpensive in the fourth quarter and got cheaper with this sell-off and just the panic um, that many, many stock market investors have. So one of the, th one of the trends I, I've seen for a number of years, I, I think of Apple more as a healthcare company. I see when you mentioned tech, I also think that more and more tech companies are going to be moving into healthcare and med tech. Um, and I think... In what sense, Neil? Do you think that the tracking of yes. COVID patients and uh, that will further will kind of jumpstart that initiative? Um, the, that's good. I, I have a hard time seeing through that. It's kind of opaque to me. But let me just try and tell you why I think Apple is a bit of a healthcare company. They, you know, they, they put an ECG on everybody's hand, right? Um, yeah. And everybody who buys, uh, everybody who's giving the metadata from their iPhone back to Apple is providing real information on their health, whether that's walking, whether, whether you have the walking app installed or not, they know where you are. Um, Won't they just sell that though? Another stream of income? But, but to, to who? Who's that worth? To? So I, again, I think these guys are going to start investing in in more and more healthcare companies. You know, I, a good buddy of mine once worked for Apple, and he he'd worked on some acquisitions there, and he he said, "Look, if if you can add a big database and a credit card to it, Apple's probably interested in taking a look at it." Um, uh, so I think that you're going to see more products. Um, like that are as ubiquitous as the pedometer today come out from the apples of the world. How's that uh, in the, in the tech world? I, I hear you. Well, I don't know, man. I think the, what is that great quote from Virgil that's in the beginning of securities analysis? Many shall rise that are now fallen and many shall fall that are now in honor. I think, uh, you know, Google and Facebook are, basically advertising-based companies. And I think advertising in a recession is always the first thing to get cut. So we'll see how they respond. But, what, but they don't die either way. They're still kind of too big to fail. I agree. Um, it's possible. And they also can operate with a flexible, more flexible costs, say, than the old yeah. line advertisers like Ogilvy or something with Chicago. Yeah, yeah. if Google cuts 70% of its headcount tomorrow, it's, you know... I don't even know what it does. If Google's revenue gets cut by 70%, they don't need to cut much of their headcount, right? They're still really profitable. Yes, but um, 
there would be reverberations and shocks. Of course, the share price yes. come the, the bellwether for everyone in terms of corporate health, financial health, <laughs> economic health. But, you know, the stock market really doesn't have a bearing on the real economy. COVID does, but the stock market uh, is now going to be wagged by the dog. It's going to be the tail wagged by the real economy dog, I think. Not just uh, the playground for the Fed uh, and for traders. Interesting. Um, I, I've got, you know, it, rather than doing, so that was kind of our current events section. I'm, I'm a, I've got a, a couple thoughts on the VC corner here for us. Um, I'd seen a big trend. That's not a big trend. I'd seen a small trend that I think was going to become bigger to use algorithms to spot winners in, in venture capital. How good is that going to continue to be in your mind? Like, when I say those words to you, what is it you're thinking? I think um, it's a new and f I don't know how that gives you a lasting advantage. You know, Neil, I think in our world of investing, no matter what side of the coin you're on, you have to, uh, the difference is behavioral, right? In the, you know, um, it's behavioral. It's um, how do you assess the quality of a company and its leadership? And how do you allocate capital appropriately? How, you know, to your best idea should go your most, most of your capital. I don't know how algorithms, I think it'll ultimately be another form of a crowded trade, basically. <laughs> They're going to start selling those off-the-shelf algorithms or they're going to be uh, written similarly because people, we human beings, tend to be group animals. We tend to think similarly. I don't know. I just think um, that, that's what my thought about it is. Like, I think you can use the way that the, yeah, the low hanging fruit gets arbitraged out more quickly. The only thing I think of algorithms for, and and we we used one from a company recently. We helped build one from a company recently. Very small cost. And um, it helped identify a bunch more companies for us. So it it was mostly for us to just test it out. I think it's like a screening tool. Yeah, that, that's more how I thought about it, right? Like if you give me 10 other good quality companies to look at, great. You know, I'm all about your algorithm. <laughs> um, but I'm still going to look at them. I'm still going to dig into the... <laughs> I, I yeah, think there's no know, replacement for fundamental analysis even, you know, another 50 years from now, right? Just... You've got to be able to think for yourself and do the hard research. No, and you're always, always, always in business with people. Yeah. <laughs> Not with numbers. You know, it was, it's funny. Whenever I think of science and I talk to people with uh, the mind of Frank, and I was a chemistry major uh, and economics major, and the, the difference between the two, the quality of the data and the behavioral sciences and economics was just so poor. No margins for error, no um, reliable data was usually collected in different ways. Um, again, just a strange jump. Um, yet, um, you know, economic numbers get reported again without margins for error, and they're digested fully by the market and it swings prices, you know, GDP numbers, which are billions of calculations not with a margin for error they do at least try to 
um, corrected, you get five goes at the GDP number. <laughs> they can adjust it, and they do. Um, but still, it's it's fascinating to me. Yes, it, it's it's very interesting. Um, I, the other thing I wonder about in kind of the the last couple of thoughts on VC um, is you know what themes are are going to be dying out and which ones are worth more um, and worth spending more time on. Um, for instance, we actually think it's worth spending a lot more time on women's health because uh, it's been neglected for a very long time, and obviously they're consumers just like everybody else, and they need things that um, that the world hasn't given them yet. Um, that, that's a theme that I think will grow, um, even if it's neglected. Is there any themes that right away die in your mind or start to die uh, other than, you know, I don't know. Uh... I think healthcare generally, Neil, you're in a, in a sense, in the sweet spot from the, this tremendous brain power and human power being put to COVID to wake us up. Hopefully we stay uh, woke <laughs> in this, but I think mental health too. Um, along, you're probably right with the women's health side of things, getting attention. But I think, um, I hope we come back to a stronger uh, focus on mental health in this country. Remember we talked to Gary last week and it was fascinating how he said, you know, how many people incarcerated with him in Angola were uh, suffered from mental health problems. Yeah, which kind of just tells me they shouldn't be there. Right? We, it'd be great to find ways to treat them. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah, misdirected people and, and that they need that. I'm sure we all need it in society, but in within the prison, certainly. And that, you know, more than two thirds of them were illiterate or functionally illiterate. It, it's amazing. You know, the last kind of interesting commentary on kind of the, the VC section here for me, and then I'd love to just hear your message to to the folks that, the 120 families that you care about uh, the most. Um, <laughs> I care about more families. No, but those are the 120 families that you, you're thinking about daily. They they, they yeah. matter a lot. Like I, I've heard you get, use the number a number of times. You care deeply about making sure those people are happy and um, are prepared. Um, I'm realizing a lot, and I don't know that I could have described this when I first met you or when I was running a superconductor company, um, that venture capital, good venture capitalists are a lot like uh, good value investors. That's more and more my impression because um, both seem to be after a very long game and I don't tend to see that in lots of other places. Although there's variations, right? There's value investors who were saying Apple was a good value stock just last year, right? As you were telling me at some value conference you went to. Um, which is kind of yeah, it, it, um, again, d different investors will place higher or different weightings on other variables or things they believe will happen. It does take some imagination. Those who, who bet on Apple a year ago were right, at, at least in terms of their vindicated in terms of current price. But yeah, that, but that doesn't mean it's a value stock. Uh, my only point is that um, venture capital, uh, at least healthcare venture capital, let me let me change that is a lot more like value investment than I realized. Um, oh, I think it always is. You know, um, it's funny because, Neil, when you talk about algorithms, you know, first my point before was most of them are built on financial and economic data, which is a poor quality data set. 
<laughs> generally speaking. Um, I see it in the public markets. They've built algorithms and some of them are good in a way. They've ferreted out some of and, and sort of squeezed out the, some of the old simple ways some value investors would work, like looking at the balance sheet, you know, low price to book value and those kinds of um, sort of simple equations. Um, you know, history had shown for 70 years that if you buy stocks that have a low price to book value or the bottom quintile of those stocks, you would outperform the general market. Well, that stopped working when the algorithms all crowded in and there were, <laughs> you know, the money flowed into there and the, boosted the value. It's just one of those things in the behavioral world that when everyone's doing it, it stops working. And ultimately that crowd will gather even with an algorithm. Um, I don't know what data sets they'll use in, in your world, but I know in my world, the data sets they use are not. Oh, they're going to be terrible. Let me just say. <laughs> That's why I think the fundamental analysis is needed, right? You've got to understand as much as you can from the papers, from the patents. Um, you've got uh -huh. to take a good understanding of the people. Um, you've got to understand, you know, why uh, bigger companies are acquiring or not acquiring that space or trying to take actual understanding of where Medtronic's going to shift to in, in a few years. And it's not like I have the answers to every one of those, those questions really well. It's that I spend lots of time trying to understand those things and just a framework. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think some ways your work is harder than mine, or at least has a different level of complexity because... You're looking for the Lee Kuan Yu's, you know? No. The nation. Lee Kuan, oh, he, okay. Nation builders. He built Singapore okay. up, right? Yeah. Thank I, you. <laughs> something very few people like this, a, a new city state, you know, akin to Venice or something. Um, and he was surrounded by enemies and he did it. Um, and it's a very high functioning society. Um, you know, you're looking for people who can, who can build like that. I'm kind of looking more at things that are already built um, or that you can see the structure um, has already manifested <laughs> and the people running it and you can assess how they've done. You can look at that a little bit too, right? Their track records, what they've done, yeah. uh, the records of success, how they treat the people with them. Uh, do they have an enthusiastic team? Uh, you know, all that um, really matters. Um, so... Take, take me through your thoughts. What do you like, you know, it's, it's Friday afternoon, May 1st. Um, and you know, your last client calls, um, and says, Hey, Chris, I'm just so scared. Or, Hey, Chris, just share what you, what, how the mark, how it went for us in the market this week. You share what it is you're thinking. What is it you're saying to, to these families? Well, I think, um, we have many layers in the portfolio, um, there's, you know, there's reserves um, of cash. We don't usually have them full. We have um, short-term bonds. We've been lucky. We've had an allocation to long-term treasury bonds and rates have plummeted. Um, you know, we believe there's a deflationary event followed by inflation. <laughs> that the, the response of the central banks is confirmed and made us more constructive on once we get through this deflationary support uh, demand destruction of COVID will come out on the other side because of monetary policy and um, direct payments to consumers will come out with some inflationary pressure on the other side. So we've had right now treasuries and interest rates have fallen and that boosts the bond prices. So that's helped. We've had an allocation to precious metals, which has also been um, 
very You've been bullish on precious metals as long as I've known you. <laughs> yeah, I have. Um, and I've been wrong through some of that period. Of course. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, because... Uh, but you're still investing you know, for a I, long period. You're not investing for a short period. So yes, you've been wrong at moments. Yeah. Well, the 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 challenge always with any commodity investing, whether it's oil and energy or, or gold or whatever, is always the price of the commodity itself. And I'd envisioned, uh, you know, the dramatic response, Herculean response of the central banks to the great financial crisis, the expansion of the Fed's balance sheet. I thought all of that would result in some inflation, and it was not to be had. The money mostly that the Fed gave to banks in form of reserves stayed in bank reserves. It was like a stagnant pool. It didn't circulate in the economy and create any inflationary pressure. But this is different. The direct payments to consumers makes a difference. It's not just a bailout that gets trapped within the financial system. It's going into the real economy. So I think that's really lit a fire under the precious metals price um, at long last. Though, you'll remember, precious metals will thrive on any kind of monetary instability, usually. Whether it's deflationary pressure or inflationary pressure, people usually cling to the oldest form of money. <laughs> it's no one else's liability. It just has that feature of safety and simplicity. So it's not hard to understand. And people go for safety and simplicity and not complexity in a situation like this. I, so that's all. Are, are there any other things you would say to them? Um, yeah, that that, that um, they have the, the tools to make it through to the other side. But we're watching it daily. Um, I do think this is a bear market, and I do think that it will um, have that historic profile of this sharp rebound giving way to a longer and more durable decline. So we want to keep reserves because there are better prices that we're probably going to see in the future. But, you know, there's that old saying, you can't pick the bottom. There's no timing. The bottom is the day before um, the market starts to rise and doesn't look back, and no one can pick the bottom. So, um, you know, there will be compelling investments and we should pick them. <laughs> we should invest in them when they come along. We shouldn't ask ourselves, is this the bottom? No one can say you should spend all your money or invest it all today. But equally, no one can say you shouldn't think ahead. And when you see a compelling investment, invest some today. So it's not a question of being scared. It's just being thoughtful and being patient, and, but being prudent. That's really the way forward. Chris, I appreciate the time with you as normal, even though we get to do this together and I get lots of interaction with you. I'm always grateful to, to spend this time with you to record this podcast and really learn from your wisdom. Well, thank you, Neil. I'm glad to be on it. I'm glad to have this audience and have people who care um, about not just investing, but philosophically um, being aligned with their choices and their values. You know, value is always subjective. So people will, like you were saying in the old example of Apple, <laughs> some people will value it uh, as they will call it a value stock. Um, but again, it's all subjective. I like pears more than apples anyway. So. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today on Market Meditations. That is all for today's episode of Market Meditation. 
we would like to thank Franklin Pendergast for taking the time to be featured on today's podcast. If you would like to learn more about either of our hosts, please feel free to visit zoiccapital.com or hbawealth.com. If you have any questions for our hosts, please feel free to reach out via LinkedIn. Thank you for listening. Um, we're going to actually have this episode edited by one of Tanner's good buddies this time. So not Chad this time, just to just to play around with it. He's going to produce it a lot more, add some sound effects and that kind of stuff. Ah. So we'll see what it sounds like. Sound effects, we're going to get like what, explosions? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so funny enough, funny enough, Cal- Callahan, yeah. Callahan uh, used to build bombs in the Navy <laughs> for a living. So you might get sounds of explosions. If you ask <laughs> Thanks in advance, Callan. Yeah, thank you. Tanner, you're a stud and a scholar. Appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of nerve-wracking a little bit, right? Because this is the first time SpaceX is going to have live people in it. Let's hope they stay that way. Yeah. Isn't isn't SpaceX run by a robot? (laughs) A robot. (laughs) An AI robot programmed to confuse us all. Yeah, (laughs) maybe. Oh yeah, yeah. There are going to be waves of this, just as with the virus. There will be waves of panic um, and some dislocations. I think, man, if China really devalues the renminbi, that would be a shock to the system. They do have that weapon. Christopher, what was the most exciting part of your day so far? Today? Yeah. Uh, coming into my office to be <laughs> breaking out of my lockdown. <laughs> like I have some freedom. You Even rebel. Though, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want anything cut out at any point, just say strike that. <laughs> It'll be stricken. No, I uh, I don't have anything political to say today. <laughs> no, no, it's totally okay if you want to talk about Trump to start with. Oh, good shot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in a good mood. <laughs> I want to stay in a good mood. <laughs>